Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife's Oral Board Review Series. My name is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm joined today by Craig Brown. Craig is a general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. Craig, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I'm happy to be here. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the pancreas. And the score core diseases and conditions for pancreas include cystic lesions of the pancreas, endocrine pancreatic neoplasms, exocrine pancreatic neoplasms, and acute pancreatitis with or without necrosis or abscess formation. Advanced diseases and conditions include IPMN, pancreatic uh, pancreatic divism, and chronic pancreatitis with or without pancreatic insufficiency. The core operations and procedures include distal pancreatectomy, pancreatic debridement, and drainage of a pancreatic pseudocyst. Advanced operations and procedures include ampullary resection for tumor, total pancreatectomy, intraoperative pancreatic ultrasound, Whipple, and operative management for chronic pancreatitis. All right, Craig, let's get started with acute pancreatitis. Uh, the main causes of acute pancreatitis, as we all know, are gallstones and alcohol. Less likely is hypertriglyceridemia syndrome or a familial cause, which is a mutation, autosomal dominant condition with mutation in the trypsinogen gene, a.k.a. PRSS1. These patients typically present with acute pancreatitis when they're young uh, and without any other known risk factors and oftentimes with a family history. Uh, for the typical presentation, Craig, what do we see? Hey, usually it's uh, severe epigastric pain. The classic historical piece is radiation to the back. Uh, these patients often have an elevation in their lipase uh, and or amylase. Uh, amylase is slightly less uh, specific just because it's found in, uh, you know, other causes of intestinal obstruction and uh, even parotiditis and things like that. But um, in any other way, we see it as pancreatitis on imaging. Fantastic. And how about working these patients up? Uh, so the first kind of step is uh, obviously make the diagnosis. Typically, we see this uh, elevation of lipase or amylase uh, along with the classic history. And then really you need to assess the, uh, what kind of, uh, or sorry, how severe the pancreatitis is in these patients. There's a couple of different ways to do that. So everybody kind of has their choice criteria, uh, but there's multiple scoring systems available to determine disease severity, both at the time of diagnosis, like their admission to the hospital, and then even days later. Uh, a couple common ones we hear about are Ransom's criteria, the Apache 2 score, uh, the BICEP score, things like that. There's a variety to use. But what that what those scoring systems allow you to do is to triage which patients should be in the ICU and which patients should be on the floor, which patients can go home, frankly. Uh, if the patients have severe disease, then uh, obviously they should probably be uh, treated in an ICU setting. And if they continue to have severe disease and you don't see a significant improvement, then it's reasonable to get a CT scan of the uh, abdomen, uh, typically pancreatic protocol. We try to do that with the three-phase IV contrast, really to look at kind of somewhat the extent of the disease, but also if they have undrained fluid collections or necrosis that um, can help with management and may explain why they're uh, continuing to do poorly. Um, that kind of parlays into treatment. Patrick, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So one uh, a, a bit of advice or caution, 
Uh, don't get caught up uh, in, uh, or don't allow yourself to misdiagnose a patient with pancreatitis and severe abdominal pain. Uh, so uh, it has been told to me that it, you can be easily tricked into taking a patient to the OR for an X-lap because they have severe pain, uh, they need to be paradinitic, et cetera. Uh, but if the diagnosis is ultimately, you know, simply pancreatitis, uh, you definitely do not want to take them to the OR early. Uh, now, the majority of uh, cases of pancreatitis are mild, and uh, they resolve with supportive care. You resuscitate, control their pain, and carefully advance their diet. Uh, but, Craig, what about if you have concerns for infection? Um, they're septic, they have an increased sure. white count, maybe they have fevers, or they have uh, even have gas and collections on the CT scan. Yeah, I think, you know, in those cases of obvious infection, uh, starting broad-spectrum antibiotics is the go-to. I think the important thing here is that, first off, don't give prophylactic antibiotics for patients with pancreatitis, and don't give antibiotics to patients who you think have a sterile pancreatic necrotic piece or uh, a sterile fluid collection. Um, in the case where you don't really know, like you're maybe uh, seeing some signs like an, an elevated white count, which maybe not isn't sorry maybe isn't specific for infection um but they're not getting a whole lot better you can sample fluid collections the thing to remember about that is that you can seed those fluid collections and be, make them infected uh if they weren't initially right and so if the infection doesn't improve you think they're infected and it doesn't improve the antibiotics then at a certain point you have to consider debridement and, and more aggressive operative intervention now ideally we want to wait at least four weeks until debriding the pancreas and no matter what the approach is um, of note, if it's less than four weeks, these uh, necrotic collections or abscesses are called acute necrotic collections. If it's greater than four weeks, it's called off. It's called walled off pancreatic necrosis. Now, if you able, if you're able to wait longer, this is associated with better outcomes and a more effective debridement uh, of procedure. Uh, it's uh, in general, we we typically describe something called a step up approach, in which uh, we use minimally invasive techniques. Um, these minimally invasive techniques, as opposed to a big open necrosectomy, are better tolerated by the patient and associated with lower uh, morbidity. Uh, but to do so, and if, if you're asked about this on the uh, oral boards, you need to be able to describe a multidisciplinary approach. And so you want to mention, uh, mention the involvement of a gastroenterologist and a, radio, uh, a radiologist as well. Uh, because minimally invasive options include percutaneous or retroperitoneal drainage, um, oftentimes uh, using retroperitoneally placed IR drains as the guide. Uh, you can also uh, ask your GI colleagues to perform a endoscopic debridement if it's easily accessible. There's also video-assisted retroperitoneal debridement or VARD procedure. Uh, next most probably invasive would be a laparoscopic or open, open uh, cyst gastrectomy and drainage if needed and or laparoscopic or open debridement. Yeah, and don't forget about nutrition in these patients too. Uh, you know, it's uh, sometimes these patients can't tolerate oral food. Um, so, you know, the choice of nasogastric versus nasojejunal tube and all that kind of stuff is a little bit controversial at this point. But the bottom line is, is think about nutrition early in these patients because oftentimes they go without nutrition for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And so going back to the surgical approach, I can expand on some of those uh, different approaches I mentioned. So let's start with open or laparoscopic. Uh, so you're going to access the patient, the, the necrotic area of the pancreas via a gastrocolic ligament or through the transverse colon mesentery, whichever is, is closer and easier to get through. You want to do gentle debridement, irrigate, and leave a whole bunch of drains. Um, at that time, you want to consider cholecystectomy as well, um, uh, certainly if, if gallstones are the cause. And as Craig mentioned, consider feeding tube placement. Uh, again, these patients need uh, nutritional support. I also mentioned the VARD procedure. 
the video-assisted retroperitoneal debridement. Uh, to perform this procedure, the patient is most often uh, going to be positioned in the lateral decubitus uh, position, and you're going to follow previously placed large bore drains. Again, uh, when you're talking with radiology about uh, uh, draining these um, collections, uh, you can work together to identify the best approach uh, uh, via uh, or best retroperitoneal approach to allow you to move for forward to a VARD procedure later down the road. And you're going to follow that large bore drain into that collection. You're going to insert, insert trocars along that track and insufflate the retroperitoneal space. And upon doing so, you're going to be able to gently debride irrigate and leaf drains in that fashion. You can also perform a transgastric necrosectomy as well. And this is very similar to a cyst gastrostomy. Uh, which, uh, again, is used for draining pancreatic pseudocysts that are adjacent to the stomach wall. Um, and, uh, again, oftentimes we want to wait until four weeks at least to perform these procedures, so wait to let, let that wall get real thick and, and rind-like. But to do a transgastric necrosectomy, we're going to do a, uh, an upper midline incision, open the anterior wall of the stomach, use ultrasound and or a needle and syringe to identify that collection uh, or necrosis abutting the posterior aspect of the stomach. Once that's identified, we can open the posterior wall of the stomach uh, and open that cyst or, uh, or necrotic area and debride it through the stomach. Uh, and typically, we want to sew open uh, that co collect connection and certainly perform performing a cyst gastrostomy. So open that uh, um, connection between the stomach and the cyst wall using permanent suture. Perfect. Real quick, we'll touch on chronic pancreatitis. Um, this is, gets really complex, ends up and, uh, getting treated by the HPB guys. But um, the key tenets for treatment of chronic pancreatitis is patients got to stop smoking and they got to stop drinking alcohol. Uh, we put those patients on a low-fat diet. Oftentimes, that's the um, move that improves their symptoms to the point where they don't need more aggressive treatment. And then you can consider uh, pain control maneuvers, like, for instance, celiac nerve blocks. It's a good time to talk to your pain colleagues and see if they have any tricks up their sleeve. Um, malabsorption is often a big problem in these patients. can lead to malnutrition and things like that. Um, so it's reasonable to treat these patients with pancreatic enzymes. And then uh, always make sure that you're monitoring and potentially treating uh, these patients for diabetes. The workup is pretty straightforward. The diagnosis is mostly clinical, uh, but you can do a CT scan with endoscopic ultrasound or MRCP, depending on the clinical circumstance. And oftentimes, the pancreas will be atrophic. Usually, you'll see some form of calcifications, which is a sign of chronic inflammation there. And then uh, oftentimes, we'll see a dilated pancreatic duct uh, distally as well. Yeah, and, and to treat this, uh, you want to start with the endoscopic approach first. And so uh, if our GI colleagues are able to place an endoscopic pancreatic duct uh, stent, uh, that's ideal. That can offload some of that um, uh, that pancreatic duct that is typically backed up and dilated, uh, and that may result in improvement in symptoms. That's obviously temporary, and the duct would or the stent would need to be replaced intermittently, uh, but that can provide some uh, relief. Uh, if uh, unsuccessful, we move on to surgical treatments, and these are uh, considered advanced procedures. Uh, but you would also move on and describe performing a longitudinal Roux-en-Y pancreatic ojejunostomy. And there's two main types. The first would be the Pousteau procedure in which uh, you do not involve the pancreatic head, don't resect it. It's just a longitudinal pancreatic ojejunostomy. And this is uh, uh, compared to the Fry, uh, Fry procedure in which you do perform pancreatic head resection. Uh, we won't go into details of how to do that today, but it might be worth looking into uh, in advance of the boards. All right, awesome. so let's move on to pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So 
Cigarette smoking is the biggest risk for the development of pancreatic cancer. Uh, these patients will present with painless jaundice, uh, weight loss, and anorexia. Uh, typically, their CA-199 is elevated. The upper limit of normal for CA-199 is 37 units per ml. Um, and the degree of elevation of CA-199 correlates directly to tumor size, resectability, prognosis, and disease uh, recurrence. Yeah, great. So in terms of locations of these tumors, about 65% of the time it's in the head and neck of the pancreas, uh, and then about 15% is in the body and tail of the pancreas. Um, these tumors are oftentimes metastatic. They go to the liver. Uh, they see metastasis to the peritoneum. We see lung metastasis and even sometimes adrenal metastasis. Uh, the kind of guidelines to be using here is the NCCN guidelines, like most cancer. Uh, they're most recently updated in 2017 and include staging recommendations. Uh, the critical ones to remember here is that the uh, kind of standard uh, would be a pancreatic protocol CT scan that involves triple phase contrast. So that's arterial phase, portal phase, sorry, arterial phase, portal venous phase, and then um, uh, non-portal venous phase, the um, uh, other veins. Um, the other option here is, uh, or the completion of that staging is also with a chest CT. And then most of the time, a biopsy is actually not needed in these cases, uh, unless the patient has metastatic disease and they're thinking about doing chemotherapy because um, your resection is going to be your uh, specimen here. Uh, there's a small risk that you can uh, seed the uh, peritoneal cavity and other things like that, depending on the uh, FNA or uh, biopsy pathway. And then um, uh, the only time we really consider those is if the CT scan isn't particularly uh, definitive, in, in which case it's not unreasonable to think about it. But just remember, there's always a risk for false negatives there as well. Right. So triple phase CT scan of the pancreas, CT of the chest, plus or minus EUS with FNA uh, if needed. And, and so resectability. So, you know, again, Craig mentioned that the primary treatment is, is resection. That's where you get to a specimen, your margins, et cetera. Uh, the resectability is uh, based on initial imaging is categorized as either resectable, borderline, or unresectable. Uh, so for the purpose of the podcast, we'll talk about what resectable is. Uh, and so that involves no celiac, SMA, or common hepatic artery contact and less than 180-degree contact without contour irregularity of the pearl vein or the SMV. If you don't yeah, meet those, couple quick, yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. those characteristics, then you're either going to fall into the borderline or unresectable uh, category. Um, what about, uh, yeah, you're, I think you were mentioning, Craig, operative management. How? What are some of the yeah. key features of that? Just a couple notes on this. Um, the, uh, multiple randomized control trials have shown that extended lymph node dissection doesn't improve survival. So uh, in general, there's no need to do that. Um, oftentimes we'll hear about pylorus preserving Whipples and, you know, there's kind of some controversy there. Uh, the, the most recent data shows that there's no difference in survival. It may improve some of the GI function like gastric emptying and things like that. Um, uh, there has been a lot of discussion recently about minimally invasive Whipples, like uh, laparoscopic Whipples and robotic Whipples. Uh, I think previously there had been some uh, discussion that that was a reasonable approach. There was a recent randomized trial this year called the Leopard 2 trial uh, that actually got ended early uh, after accrual of about 75% of patients in that study because the laparoscopic group uh, had 15% 
uh, 90-day mortality relative to a 0% risk of mortality in the open group. And so uh, I think most people are moving towards the direction that laparoscopic Whipples are uh, not the preferred option and that we should really be doing Whipples open. Um, I think, you know, it's still pretty hotly contested. There's people on either side of that argument, but that trial was a big blow to the laparoscopic side. Um, in general, mortality after a Whipple procedure is about 2%, um, but the post-op compl the, post complication rate is high. It's about 40% overall, and about 10% of patients are going to have a pancreatic fistula, which is kind of the dreaded complication there. So, um, Patrick, do you want to talk quick about neoadjuvant adjuvant treatments? Those have always confused me. Yeah, so um, again, uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and chemo radiation can be used for borderline resectable disease. Uh, and that can be used to downstage the tumor to allow for surgery or to identify those with rapidly progressing disease who uh, their tumor biology doesn't you know, uh, make them good candidates to proceed with surgery. Again, resectability is determined by a lack of involvement of the celiac, the SMA, and the common hepatic artery, and a less than 180-degree contact with out contour irregularity of the portal vein of the SMV. And... In general, all patients should get adjuvant chemotherapy, no matter what the stage uh, uh, following uh, their surgical resection. Yeah, we always hear, you know, uh, pancreatic cancer is a systemic disease. And what about surveillance, um, Greg? Yeah, sure. So NCCN guidelines are the go-to here. Really, it's H&P uh, CA-199 measurement and then an abdominal CT scan every six months for two years and then annually thereafter. Now, Patrick, do you want to talk quick about palliation as well? Yeah, so uh, palliation for jaundice uh, patients, um, again, uh, the non-resectable, uh, worsening jaundice, uh, you can consider hepaticojejunostomy or cholidocojejunostomy or even even stenting. And uh, in regards to, to stents, um, for patients going straight to surgery, there are better outcomes if no stent is placed. Uh, but for patients undergoing neoadjuvant treatment, uh, there is definitely a debate over plastic versus metal stents. Uh, the metal stents are wider, they have greater patency, and are replaced less often, but they're oftentimes more expensive, and some surgeons think it interferes with reconstruction. Uh, the, uh, there's no clear data on that, so it's just good to be aware about this you know, plastic versus metal controversy. In regards to gastric, out, uh, gastric outlet obstruction, I'm going to be able to describe a gastrogygenostomy to, to relieve that obstruction, or you could even mention uh, placing a stent in the uh, palliative setting. And then finally, patients with pain. Um, Craig mentioned early, earlier you consider a celiac neurolysis. Um, this can be performed uh, percutaneously uh, uh, by our interventional radiology colleagues uh, or pain doctors, or at the time of surgery if that patient is, in fact, unresectable. I got a tough question for you, Patrick. Yes. Can you talk through a Whipple procedure? Yes, yes. Okay, so Whipple. Um, again, this is considered an advanced uh, procedure for the SCORE uh, curriculum. Uh, you want to consider performing first performing diagnostic laparoscopy. Um, once you proceed on uh, to the Whipple procedure, do an upper midline, explore the abdomen. We're going to open the lesser sac uh, widely and mobilize the hepatic flexure. Then move on to perform an extensive uh, coker maneuver, and we'll follow the middle colic vein uh, to the SMV uh, to identify in order to identify the SMV and make a tunnel behind the pancreas on top of the SMV. Uh, at that point, um, and again, you can go in any order uh, here, but at that point, I would, I would talk about dissecting the portal structures next. Uh, we're going to identify the GDA and ligate it, but before doing so, we want to ensure it's not the common hepatic. 
And we would clamp that vessel for the GDA first and then check for pulses on the distal hepatic artery to ensure they're still present before ligating. And we're going to ligate the right gastric artery. And then perform a cholecystectomy. And as I mentioned before, we started making our tunnel behind the pancreas and on top of the SMV. At this point, I'd complete the tunnel from above once that portal dissection is complete. Then transect the, uh, the uh, stomach proximal to the pylorus. Try transect the jejunum 15 centimeters from the ligament of trites and transect the pancreas over the SMV. We then carefully dissect the pancreas from the SMV and remove the specimen from the field. Next, mobilize the jejunum and uh, pass the jejunum through the transverse colon mesentery to the patient's right uh, of their middle colic vessels. And finally, perform a reconstruction with a pancreaticojejunostomy using uh, 5-0 PDS interrupted sutures on the duct and 3-0 modified Blumgart sutures on the gland. To do the cholidocojejunostomy, use 4-0 interrupted PDS, and then perform anticholic gastrojejunostomy in whichever fashion you're most comfortable with. Great. That's uh, pretty thorough. You sound like you just took the boards. <laughs> um, we'll quick talk about cystic pancreatic neoplasms for a second. These are sometimes uh, ignored, but they tend to be uh, kind of confusing. The sort of least interesting, in my opinion, is serous cystic neoplasms. Uh, the bottom line is, is that these are cystic lesions that are not connected to the duct. Um, they have very rare, if any, malignant transformation. And I think the bottom line here is just leave these things alone. Um, another common one we'll see is mucinous cystic neoplasms. Uh, interestingly, these are almost totally uh, confined to female patients. They can, or contain ovarian stroma, uh, and they're not connected to the duct at all as well. It, the malignancy rates here are pretty high. Some uh, estimates are even as high as 60%, um, and the vast majority are in the tail of the pancreas, and the bottom line here is that we got to resect these things. Um, what, what about uh, term, yeah, yeah, IPMNN? So IPMNs, uh, we separate them mainly whether they involve the main duct or the branch duct. Uh, they're most commonly located in the pancreatic head. And there are some guidelines for treatment. Craig, you want to run through those too? Yeah, these are constantly changing as well, and I think they're always uh, being evaluated. Um, initially, there were the Sendai cr criteria, which have since been updated in 2012. I believe that's the most recent uh, set of criteria, and they're called the Fukuoku Guidelines. Um, it's really, I'll just try to boil it down to the main points here. The main point is for main duct IPMNs, we surgically resect all those. Again, the, the malignancy risk is something like 60%. And then branch duct IPMNs are really going to be, uh, dictated by a couple of interesting features. So, um, I'll just walk through kind of the way to approach, uh, uh, cystic neoplasm of the pain, or sorry, an IPMN per the Fukuoku guidelines. So they describe things in terms of high-risk stigmata of malignancy. So those include obstructive jaundice in a patient with a cystic lesion in the head of the pancreas, an enhancing neural nodule greater than 5 millimeters, or a main pancreatic duct greater than 10 millimeters. That is a main duct IPMN. Uh, if they meet any of those criteria, we operate if they don't meet those criteria, then you have to evaluate them for what they consider worrisome features. And those include a cyst uh, greater than three centimeters, an enhancing mural nodule that's less than five millimeters, uh, thickened or enhancing cyst walls, a main duct that's between five and nine millimeters, or an abrupt change in the caliber of the pancreatic duct with distal pancreatic atrophy. Also, if you see lymphadenopathy, 
if they have an elevated CA199 or if they've had cyst growth rate that's greater than 5 millimeters over two years, those are all worrisome features and buy them an EUS. Um, if they don't have any of those criteria, then uh, that sort of dictates their surveillance strategy. But if you don't see, uh, or sorry, if, if they have high-risk stigmata or they have worrisome features, then generally those patients are heading down the path to surgery. Great. So let's cover a distal pancreatectomy really quick. This is a, uh, a core procedure for the SCORE guidelines. Uh, you can perform distal pancreatectomy laparoscopic or, or open. Um, you can uh, do open, do an upper midline incision, uh, enter the left of the sac via the gastrocolic ligament. Uh, you're going to identify the inferior border of the pancreas and dissect the longness. And next, identify the splenic artery and splenic vein. And if you want to preserve uh, the spleen, and there's, we can talk, there's a lot of detail about whether or not you're going to do that. You'll separate the vessels and ligate those independently. Um, and, uh, or if you cannot uh, separate them entirely, you could come across the vessels as well as the gland with a buttress staple load. Uh, typically, leave a drain uh, behind to evaluate for pancreatic leak slash fistula. Uh, and I think that's generally describes it. Let's go on to the last topic, endocrine tumors, so pancreatic endocrine tumors. So uh, in general, we want to first determine if these are malignant uh, um, or if they have malignant potential and if they're functional. Uh, so there's really no established staging system uh, in regards to our kind of basic understanding of or, or typical TNM, TNM guidelines. It's, it's not the same case here. The World Health Organization has a classification system to help determine whether uh, uh, these pancreatic uh, neuroendocrine tumors may be malignant or benign. Uh, and there are four key features of that. So if the size is less than two centimeters, if the mitotic count is less than two per 10 high-powered fields, if the KI-67 index is less than 2%, and if there's absence of paraneural or vascular invasion, these are all suggest that this is a more benign mass. So again, size less than two centimeters, mitotic count less than two, KS67 index less than 2%, and absence of paraneural or vascular invasions. Um, I mentioned with determine if it's functional, Craig, how do we uh, go about determining functionality of these masses? Yeah, so the key point here is detailed history and physical. I know we always say that as the start to every evaluation of a patient, but really it's the critical point here. Um, we can test for hormones, but like, you know, it's exhaustive to go through all the hormones that are possible. Um, the five most common uh, neuroendocrine tumors here is insulinoma, gastrinoma, um, VIPoma, glucagonoma, and then somatostatinoma. And the clinical features of the historical points that I think are important for each uh, really help us define whether these are uh, functional tumors or not. So insulinomas, patients often present with hypoglycemia, and uh, they present in an anabolic state. Patients with gastrinoma or Zollinger-Ellison syndrome often uh, present with peptic ulcers, oftentimes multiple uh, and oftentimes in the stomach. And then those patients often have severe diarrhea. That's kind of the classic point there. VIPomas, um, also watery diarrhea, hypokalemia, and uh, a persistent acidosis. And then glucagonoma patients have hyperglycemia. They are in a catabolic state and often have dermatitis, which is an interesting point there. And then finally, somatostatinomas, those patients are hyperglycemic. They have steatorrhea and oftentimes have gallstones as well.
Right. And, and many, uh, uh, even non-functional pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors actually secrete chromogranin A or pancreatic polypeptide or both. Uh, so it's worth checking the chromogranin A and pancreatic polypeptide levels for all of these uh, um, tumors or, or concern for a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Uh, you can also follow these levels following uh, resection as well. And uh, an important reminder is that most, the most common familial syndrome associated with these is MEN1 and the presence of a gastronoma. And these gastronomas are most often found within the gastronoma triangle, which is within the uh, uh, borders of the common bile duct, the duodenum, and the pancreatic uh, head. And we talked about gastrin levels and, uh, for gastronomas. If you have a gastrin level greater than 1,000, that's typically considered diagnostic. Uh, so what about uh, imaging and, and or localization uh, tests for these uh, types of masses, Greg? Yeah, the, this, is, this is a really tough point. So sometimes patients will show up, they have a clinical syndrome that's uh, consistent with a neuroendocrine tumor, but nothing shows up on the uh, imaging. Sometimes it does. Uh, on uh, CT scan, the way that those will show up is with oftentimes brightly enhancing arterial phase uh, mass. MRI can be helpful here. Endoscopic ultrasound is really helpful and uh, has pretty good sensitivity. And then a newer imaging modality called a dotatate PET scan uh, has been shown to be better than octreotide PET scanning. And so that's uh, a commonly used option. It has higher sensitivity and specificity for both primary tumor and metastasis. So dotatate scan is uh, a good one to keep in your back pocket. And then finally, venous sampling. So you really can't find anything on imaging. Patients got sim symptoms, uh, but you can't figure out where it's coming from. You could try selective venous sampling for those uh, hormones. In terms of workup and treatment, in general, if it's resectable, resect it. If it's if there's metastatic disease and it's symptomatic, then you can consider debulking those patients. And then uh, if it's metastatic and inoperable, then oftentimes octreotide helps a lot with palliation um, of symptoms, and you can consider chemotherapy. That pretty much ends it for pancreas. Uh, Patrick, thanks for having me on. And to everybody listening, thanks for listening and um, dominate the day. Thanks for having me on, and to everybody listening, thanks for listening, and um, dominate. Until next time, dominate the day.